Mr. Follies. And uh, for those of you who don't know what it is, uh, LCU is kind of a smaller school. They don't have a football team. And so at homecoming, like the biggest thing going is this thing called Master Follies. And it's like a six-minute musical, basically, that you write and produce and choreograph. And, uh, and all the social clubs on, on campus do it. And it's like the biggest competition all year. And, and like they have intramural football and stuff like that that the clubs compete in. But honestly, the biggest thing that the clubs do all year is Master Follies. And I remember going whenever I was a kid, we would go home to or we'd go to Lubbock for homecoming. And my parents went there. So we'd go to homecoming and I'd see Master Follies. And I was like, man, that's awesome. I want to be in that. And then my sister graduated high school and she went to LCU and I got to see her doing Master Follies. And I was so jealous. And um, and so I wanted to do Master Follies so bad. And uh, and so finally I graduated and went to LCU. And my first year, uh, I got in, I was in a club called Alpha Chi Delta, and, and we were doing Master Follies. I was so excited. And our show that year was Smurfs. And uh, and I don't know if you know what the Smurfs are. They actually have movies coming out now. But it's a cartoon that was like way back whenever I was a kid, uh, like five or six. It's like these little blue creatures. I don't know what they are, little blue elf-type things. And so that's what we were, and we were Smurfs. And so we were we worked really hard on it. And uh, like you, you practice three hours a day, four days a week. And then you have an all-night practice that you do. And so we worked really hard, and we were really proud of our show. And, uh, and like, people would come up, and they'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'll have a good show. And so we, we did it, and we performed it, and we lost. And so it was very disappointing. And so we came in third place out of three clubs. And, and so that, that was awful. And so but the next year, uh, two of my friends were going to direct a show. And they, they directed a 70s show. And so we all had, like, these big Afro wigs on and bell-bottom pants and these, like, sequin vests. And we did all these, like, 1970s songs, and we were disco dancing and all this stuff. And, again, we worked really hard on it, and it was fun, and we were proud of our show. And we lost, again, third place out of three, out of three shows. And so we, uh, we were disappointed. And so I had this idea for a Masterfall show that... Uh, that, that me and my cousin, I have, I have two cousins that I'm really close to, Lan and Nate Bundy. And me and my cousin Lan uh, decided we, sh- we should just write a show together. We should do that. And so we came up with the idea. We we're going to do a Jedi Master Folly show. And, uh, and so for a year, maybe even over a year, before we were even elected Master Folly's director, we started getting together. And we'd get together at least once, maybe twice a week at my apartment there in Lubbock. And we would spend hours just talking about master follies and we'd come up with dance moves and like so it's like us like dancing in our apartment and like doing all this stuff and like like do we think 40 guys could do that yeah let's write that down so we'd like and we had the video camera set up and we'd film ourselves doing our moves so we'd remember what they were and uh and we'd just play music until if we'd we'd be up to like one or two in the morning just listening to music and dancing and having a good time and for a year we wrote this master folly show and uh I, I, I'm very proud of it. I'll say that. It was, it was a very good show. And, uh, and so we, we kind of went through the same thing. And the, the, way you're, the way you win or lose Master Follies is they have three judged performances. You have a, a Friday night show, Saturday morning show, and a Saturday evening show. And so we, uh, we went and we, we did our, uh, our Friday night show. And, uh, and we got the judges' score sheets back, and they were all, like, excellent. Like, they, the way they judge you is you have poor, fair, good, or excellent in like five or six different categories, like how good your singing was and if your moves were good or if your costumes were good, all that stuff. And, 
And so we got our judges sheet back, and like they were all excellent. And we're like, oh man, this is exciting. We were doing really good. Um, Saturday afternoon, we got our judges scores back, and we're going through, and they're all excellent. And there was one, it was like if you had a piece of paper, all right, the way that the judges sheets were, it was like a piece of paper folded in half like that. And they had poor, good, fair, or, or fair, poor, good, and excellent. And we got this one back, and it didn't have anything circled or checked on it. And we're like, well, that's not very helpful. And someone who was sitting down below us looked, and they said, there's something written on the other side. And so we unfolded it, and this judge was awesome because he'd written the word superior. And he circled it all the way down. And we're like, all right, we got this. This is going to be awesome. And so we went, and Saturday night we did our show. And, like, Saturday night's, like, the big show. Like, that's where all the alumni want to come. And, like, it's, it's the the goal like they want to yell for like five minutes before you can even start your show and so you're like standing up on stage and like you have this whole crowd of people are just yelling at you and it's really exciting and uh and so we we did our show and uh and then it comes time for them to tally the votes and we're all standing up there and uh the way they do it is they have like the host and hostesses of master follies that kind of sing between all the club shows and then all the master follies directors and the presidents of all the clubs are all up on stage and so it was me and my cousin lan who were the the directors, and a friend of ours, Adam Crawford, who was president that year. And so we're standing up there in our Jedi costumes and uh, waiting for them to announce the winner. All right? And they always do the, the women's first. They do go, go second place women's division. They say whoever that is. No one really cares. And then, I, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. But I didn't care at all. I didn't care at all. I, it, didn't, it didn't matter who won second place women's division. And then they, they do second place men's division. And they say, second place men's division, the men of Alpha Chi Delta. And that was us. And, like, we thought we thought we had won it. And so, like, I wish I had the video. I have a VHS tape, which I don't think we have the capability to play anymore. But uh, you, in the video, you can see, like, all our faces. We're, like, standing there. We're so excited. And they say our name. And it's just like, oh. And, like, you can just visibly see, like, the life drained out of all of us. And we walk up to the front, and they give us the second place trophy. And they're taking our picture for the paper. And, like, there's no smiles, there's no happiness, there's no joy on any of our faces. And we stand there, and then we go back, and we're standing there, and we're just, like, defeated. And, like, there's this moment, um, and I think as I get older, I'm kind of struck by, by these moments more, these moments of finality. It's like, once this happens, there's, there's no going back to what it was before. And, uh, and that's kind of the way I, I was just sitting there thinking. I was like, what can we do to win still? And the answer was nothing. Like, we're, we just lost. Again, we, we, or we came in second. And so we're sitting there, and we're all just kind of upset. And then all of a sudden, we see this, like, commotion going on on stage. And Doc Williams, who's, like, the head of the, the, the drama department there, he goes up, and he's talking to the girl that's announcing everything. And, and we just see her saying, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. And we're like, what's going on? And so Doc Williams takes the microphone from her, and he says, I'm sorry, there's been a mistake. And like at that point, we're like, oh my goodness, we got a second chance. We could do this. This, this, might be, this might be it. And so they come, and they take our second place trophy away from us, and they bring out new envelopes, and they say second place goes to the men of Quanania, who we did not like. And so we were happy about that. And so they gave them the, the, they gave them the, the plaque, and then we're standing there. And they call it first place women's division again. I wasn't listening. And first place men's division, men of Alpha Chi Delta. And it was like this huge like rush of redemption and like happiness. And this whole year had paid off. And like 
we're just like arms raised, like walking up to the front triumphant. It's a very different picture than five minutes before when we were walking down to get our second place trophy. And, uh, and so we did that. And then the icing on the cake, two years before, they had started a new uh, category called People's Choice. And so everyone who saw got to write in a ballot and got to vote for who they thought would win. And we won People's Choice, too. And so we got first place men's division and People's Choice. And we were the first club in history to do that. And, but it had only been there for two years before. But still, we were, the first, <laughs> we were the first club in history to win first place and People's Choice. And I mean, I, I cannot tell you how excited I was. Like, I was like, I was, I'm a crier anyways. And so I was crying with happiness because I'd worked so hard on the show and we had won. And, uh, and like still today... Like, people will show that show, like, in, to their clubs and say, this is what a good matchball show looks like. Like, I'm proud of my, my matchball show. It's, like, one of the best ever. And, uh, and I tell you that because I want you to hear, there, there are things in my life that I'm proud of. Like, I, I talked about my kids and my grilled cheese sandwich and, uh, and my matchball show. And there's things that I've done that I'm proud of, that I'm, that I'm happy to tell you about. Um, and a lot of times, that's kind of what we think pride is, is it's almost like an arrogance. Like, like you might think I'm arrogant for standing up here and telling you about how awesome my show is. But, uh, but I have a platform, so I did it. And, uh, and so you, you might think there's some arrogance there or there, there's something wrong with just getting up and just kind of bragging about yourself. And um, there's, a, there's a comedian that I'm, I'm going to show you a clip. His name is Brian Regan. And he's one of my favorite stand-up comedians. And he does this bit about the me monster. And, uh, and he talks about, you know, at, at a party, you have these guys that, that just try to one-up your story and always, no matter what you tell, they have a better story. And so I'm going to show you all this clip, and then I'm going to talk about it here in a second. Why do people need to top other people? I've never understood it, and I see it all the time. Obviously, people get something out of it. At best, people wait for your lips to stop. Yeah, as soon as... Okay, yeah, you, me, you, me, you see the difference? You see, you see that? Now I do. What is it about the human condition people get something out of that? That's why I have a social fantasy. I wish I was one of the 12 astronauts who have been on our moon. They must love knowing they can be anybody's story whenever they want. They can sit back quietly at a dinner party while some other person, some meat monster, is doing his thing and let him go. Let him run with the line while you be quiet. <laughs> let him have his moment. Yeah, I'm a big traveler. I have my business. All. I got my own global enterprise. I got to check on. You know, driving in the Autobahn because I keep a fleet of sports cars over in Zurich and I got this Swiss account that I want to check it. Not a Kilimanjaro expedition. Might have to cancel that. You know, the runways in Aspen are a lot shorter the first time you go in there. And, you know, you got Pacific Rim Company. We're going to try to take that over. And I'm like, no, 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 it's global enterprise. I walked on the moon. You have the floor, Moonwalker. <laughs> you know, you mentioned driving on the Autobahn. That reminded me. Once I was driving in the Sea of Tranquility. <laughs> in my Lunar Rover. 
And I too was worried about our speed till I remembered, wait, we're the only ones on the moon. <laughs> I, I, I love that because I don't know if y'all have ever uh, come across a one-upper, uh, the, the guy that always has to have the best story. And maybe you are that guy or girl. I don't know. Uh, I think I've been that guy at times in my life where I've like, I felt myself doing it and I have to like catch myself because I know people who do this, that they, when, as soon as you're done with a story, they're going to, they're going to be, they're going to beat that story. Like, oh, you've done that. Oh, I've done that times 10. All right. And sometimes we kind of think pride, uh, we, we think of that in, whenever we think of pride and we think of. Pride is almost an, an annoyance, all right? Maybe it's something to be tolerated, something to be put up with. Um, but just like John's been talking about through this whole series, uh, these sins are bigger than what we think. And, uh, and I'm going to tell you that pride is more than just something that's, that can be annoying in other people. Pride is a deadly sin. Um, and I'll tell you why. Because pride goes beyond just talking about yourself and bragging about yourself. And we, we have this... Uh, up here that kind of talks about these seven things that we're going to be looking at and it, it all happened by accident but me and john were actually talking about whenever uh when we were talking about this series uh this humility versus self man versus self which is kind of what we're talking about today just happened to fit into the center of this and the reality is that in a lot of ways that's the truth that pride is the sin that leads to a lot of other sins. Because what pride does, it's not just about us bragging about ourselves, but pride turns our focus inward. It makes us look at ourselves as the center of our world instead of looking at, at, looking at the world with God as the center of our life. And that's a dangerous thing because as you see, you know, uh, John, the first week we talked about man versus couch and talked about how this couch can steal our life. Well, the way that the couch steals our life is because we look at our time and we value our time and we say, whatever I want to do is most important. And I've had a hard day of work, so I'm not going to go get involved in that. I'm not going to go do that. I'm tired. I'm going to rest. And we make ourselves the center and, and, and we indulge ourselves. Uh, we look at, you know, man versus resentment, which we looked at last week, and, and which is also kind of this, this idea of envy and jealousy. And we, and, and we start to look at what other people have and like John said, instead of being grateful and excited for the good things that happen to other people, we focus on ourselves and what we don't have. Um, man versus flesh, which John's going to talk about here in a little bit. Uh, we, we turn the focus inwards, and instead of looking at what, uh, what is best for the person that I'm involved in, all right, we look at what's best for me, what makes me feel good right now, and we lose focus on the site that, uh, that this man or this woman that we're involved with is a child of God or might be someone else's husband or wife and we let ourselves fall into these sins that kill us uh, man versus food we start looking at uh, that's not, I, I struggle with that I don't know if you can tell uh, the, we, we, we turn the focus from what does other people's needs to what what do I need what do I want and we, we trick ourselves into thinking it's need but it's want and um, I took a missions class in in college one 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 semester and uh, he was, we talked a lot about worldview. And one of the things we talked about is world, with worldview is the way that the world views food in different areas of the world. Okay? And so they say, you know, in a third world country, the way that a, a child views food is very different than in a first world country like the one we live in here. And so in a third world country, 
the question is, or we'll start at the top, actually. If in, in a very wealthy society, the, the way that they view food is, the, the first question they ask is, is it presented well? Okay? And I don't know if you've ever watched, like, the Food Network, but they always talk about how beautifully you plated your food and, like, how, and how, how well you arranged it and the colors that you put on your plate. It's just beautiful. And that's their, that's their priority is, does it look pretty? Does your food look pretty? All right? And then as you get into, like, a middle-class world, the, the question is, does it taste good? And that's, our, that's, that's my thing is, if it tastes good, I'm going to eat it. And I don't care what it looks like, I'm going to eat it. And then as you get down into the, into the poverty-stricken world, they, the, their question is, is there enough? And so you ask someone from all three different worldviews, how is dinner? And the answer is going to be very different depending on what part of the world you come from. You know, where I might say, oh, it was delicious. Someone else might say, oh, it was beautiful. And someone else can say, there was enough. That's how dinner was, is we all had enough to eat. And, uh, and pride takes that focus from what other people need and focuses it on ourselves. Uh, man versus money. We look at the money that we have and we say, well, I've earned this money. I've worked really hard for this money and I'm going to spend it on what I want to spend it on. Uh, rage. All right. That's a hard one. Uh, I, that's the one that I don't necessarily really relate to. I'm not really a rageful person, but there have been times in my life where I have raged and I've been angry. And what I've done is I've focused my attention on myself. What is happening to me? Is this fair to me? And whenever it's not fair, I blow up. And maybe some of y'all can relate to all that. And so we look at all of these sins that we all struggle with, and they all start from pride. They all start from, from this change of focus from, oursel- from, from what the world around us to ourselves. Um, turn with me over to Second Samuel chapter 11. Uh, this is a story that a lot of y'all are familiar with, and I'm not going to read the whole thing verbatim, but I'm going to kind of tell you what's going on in this story. Okay, uh, this is a story that we see David and Bathsheba. Okay, and, and as soon as I say those two names, you know what the story is about. Uh, it's kind of like a, a biblical soap opera that's playing out right here. Um, and before I get into that, I want to talk to you about context. Okay, because what's truly deadly about pride is context. And uh, to do this, I told Megan like five minutes before I did this that I was going to ask her to come up here. So she's very unprepared for this. She hasn't done anything. But I'm going to ask Megan to come up here because I'm going to kind of show you how context can make a huge different difference in, in the way we view things. Okay, so this is my beautiful wife, Megan. She's very pretty. You can give her a round of applause. Thank you for coming. Up. So, um, All right, and, and would it be possible to put up that picture that was up while, uh, while Camille was up with the three crosses up there? Um, because here's what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not sure exactly how long that'll take. But I'm going to put Megan right over here. Okay. And so Megan's going to stand right here. And then I'm going to stand all the way over here. Okay. And here's the cross right up here. If my focus is on me, if, if I have changed, shifted my context to where God is not the center and I am the center then right now, whenever I'm looking at the relationship with my wife, my number one priority is, am I close to my wife? Okay? And so here, as we, as we walk closer together, maybe we, we just got done spending this weekend together uh, without the kids, and we had this awesome time. And so we walk together, and we're kind of walking around over here, and our number one priority is, are we closer together? Which is a good thing. It's good for you to be close to your wife. 
But if that's my number one priority, have I gotten any closer to the cross as we walked around in this kind of half circle here? I haven't. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Megan, I'm going to ask you to go stand by that pillar. And I'm going to stand by this pillar. Now, my wife and me are separated now. Not really, but like in this room, we're separated. It wasn't a confession or anything. Uh, but we're, we're apart from each other, okay? And instead of us walking straight to each other, if we both walk towards this cross, if the cross is the center, then what you will see is as we grow closer to the cross, we also grow closer to each other, okay? That's a much better way to grow closer to your wife than just trying to, to relate to her or anything like that. But if you are both helping each other to get closer to the cross, then you're going to grow closer to each other as a result. Thank you for doing that, Megan. So, but... The way that we do that is by remembering our context. Okay, And the context basically is just understanding how we fit into the series of the relationships around us. Okay, uh, In this story, in 2 Samuel 11, we see David... And David is out of context in a lot of different ways, okay? He has forgotten who he is. He has forgotten where he's supposed to be, what kind of man he's supposed to be. And so he's up in the middle of the night, which when, where, what are you supposed to be doing in the middle of the night? Sleeping. And he's not. So he's up. He's already not where he's supposed to be. He's out on the roof, and he sees a woman over here bathing on the roof. Now, she's not necessarily where she's supposed to be either, okay? I don't know if they bathe on the roof all the time. But David's up there. He looks and he sees a woman who is not his. Okay? And he calls his servants and he says, tell me about this woman. All right? And his servant, if you read the, the text, he stays in context because he says, that's Bathsheba. She's married and she's not married to you. She's married to Uriah. He's reminding David. That's not, some, that's not a, a road you need to go down. Okay? She's over there, you're over here, you need to stay there. But David says, bring her to me. And if you are a servant of the king, and the king gives you an order, what do you do? You follow the order. Because he remains in context. He remembers, I am the servant, David is the king, whatever he tells me to do, I'm going to do. And so he goes and he brings Bathsheba, and we know the rest of the story where Bathsheba kind of submits to David's will, and David tries to cover up the sin that he's done, and he ends up having her husband killed to cover up this, this, this evil. And all the way through, we see David living out of context. We see David focused on himself, focused on his own desires, focused on what's going to please him at this moment. And it's not until verse 12 that, uh, that Nathan comes. And he says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city... The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he, brought, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. All right. What was David before he was a king? 
He was a shepherd, okay? So he knows a little bit about raising sheep, okay? And he probably knows that sometimes you can get attached to these animals that you're working with and that you're caring for. And so Nathan comes to him trying to get him back into this context where, where God called him from. God called him as a shepherd to shepherd God's people. And he says, David, you're a shepherd, all right? And so we're going to talk about shepherding right now. And so he, he tells him this story of this rich man who takes from this poor man who has nothing. Verse 5 says, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. And in that phrase, in that statement, David is brought back into context. He's recentered, and he realizes that all of these things that he's doing, this sin that he's involved in, this, this attempts to cover up his sin and to hide his sin, has been because he has focused on himself rather than keeping God as the focus. And guys, that's what pride does to us. Pride shifts the focus to ourselves, to where we focus only on what we want, what we feel like we need, and we lose sight of what's right. There's a couple things that happen whenever uh, we let pride take over. One is that pride will kill our relationships. I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship with a prideful person, uh, not necessarily just as a spouse relationship, but maybe a working relationship, uh, where someone always believes that they're right, believes that their way is the most important way, believes that what they want and what they need is more important than what anyone else wants or needs, and they're willing to throw their weight around to get it. Um, it kills relationships. Pride not only kills relationships, but pride marginalizes others. Okay? Um, and this is, this, this is one of the, the most dangerous things, especially for the church. Because what pride does is it shifts the center to ourselves. And we start to say, I'm the only one who can do this right. So I'm the only one who's going to do it. And we start to push other people to the side. And, we think, and, and people come in and say, well, I'd like to be involved. And we're like, oh, well, that's cute and sweet. But you can't do it as well as I can. So you just go sit over there. And we start to push people who have value who God has built value into, and we start to push them to the side because our pride keeps us as the ones doing it, all right? We think we're the only ones who can do it right, who can do it the best. And pride deifies ourselves. Pride makes ourselves our own God, where we start to look at what we accomplish, and we say, I have made a great business for myself. I have provided for my family. I have done all of these great things. And we start to re think that, that we are enough and that we don't have a need for God. And that's, all three of those things are dangerous things. I'm going to tell you a, a few ways that I think that we can get away from those things. Number one, pride in our relationships that kills those relationships. What we need to do is instead of talking, we need to listen. And we need to hear what the other person is saying. Because there's been times in my life, and Megan will attest to this, where me and her will have had arguments, and I will not listen to what she's saying. All I'm doing is getting ready to throw my next argument out. As soon as she's done talking, I've already prepared my next argument, I've prepared my next point, and it's a good one, and I'm going to throw it at her as hard as I can, and I'm going to try to get her to shut up. That's a confession I just gave you. That's a, that's a reality. Uh, and, I, and that's not something that I'm proud of. But that is how I have, done, I have acted in the past. 
And I'm not perfect. I'll probably still act that way. But I try to not. And so one of the things that we need to do is we notice that our pride is killing our relationships is we need to listen to the other person. We need to really try to understand where they're coming from and realize, again, that God built value into those people, whether it be our spouse, our children. Sometimes that's the hardest one is our children who come to us and they want to, to discuss something and we dismiss them because they're young or they're, they're ignorant of the way that the world works and, they, and, and, and we miss out on some really big jewels. One time uh, we were having a, a nightly devo where we, we'd read a little section of this children's Bible and... Uh, and Megan and Katie and Clark, I think, had gone out of town somewhere. And so it was just me and Will at home by ourselves. And so I thought that we would skip Evening Devo. I was like, it's a long day, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip Evening Devo. But, um, but, but Will didn't want to. He said, hey, can we, are we going to read the Bible tonight? And as youth minister, I was like, oh, of course we're going to read the Bible tonight. Yes. And so I went and I got the Bible off the mantle. We sat down and we read, and the story that we read was Elijah on Mount Carmel, where, uh, where, where, where God defeated the prophets of Baal, and then Elijah went away and he feared for his life, and God appeared to him in the gentle whisper. And I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but you need to go read it if you haven't. It's a great part of the Bible. Um, and so we read that, and I was talking with Will, and, uh, and uh, I can't remember exactly how we worded it. This was several years ago. But uh, we were talking about the part where, where he heard the gentle whisper. And, and Will said, uh, Papa, do you ever hear God's whisper to you like that? And, uh, and I was like, well, not really. And like, I was thinking real literally. I was like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really hear God whispering in my ear or anything like that. And, uh, and Will goes, well, I do. I hear God whisper to me. And, uh, and I said, well, what's he telling you? And he says, he's telling me that I need to tell all my friends that he loves them. And I just thought that was awesome. And uh, sometimes if we're quick to dismiss people who we don't think are as smart as us or know as much as us, we're going to miss some pretty awesome things. So we need to learn to listen to people. Um, Number two, our pride marginalizes others and keeps people from getting involved. Again, this is one of the, I think the most damaging thing for the church is that we put ourselves on these pedestals and say, well, this is my ministry, whatever it might be. I'm the one who started this. I'm the one who's driving this. I'm the one who's going to make this happen. And we feel like if we pull ourselves out of the picture, that that's just going to crumble and it's going to fall away. And two things I have to say to that is one, maybe it needs to sometimes, maybe sometimes we, we hold on to things and we, and we, and we perpetuate these sacred cows that we've said this is a great thing but really if we pull ourselves out of that and we let some things die maybe that gives room for new things to grow up in its place and two if we pull ourselves out and it's really a great work god's not going to let it fall apart god's going to put someone else in there who can help make it grow who can who can help keep it to keep it going and who can maybe even grow beyond what we've been able to grow it ourselves and so sometimes our pride keeps us locked in these positions that keep others from doing things and keep our own things that we love from growing into something bigger. So sometimes what we do is we need to practice saying the word no. When people say, hey, are you going to do that? We can say, no, I'm not going to do that. Because if I do that, that's keeping someone else from getting plugged in and getting involved. That's keeping something going that may not need to keep going. And so I'm not saying we need to say no to everything. But every once in a while, we need to take a step back and say, you know what? No, that doesn't rest on my shoulders. 
if that's something that God wants to happen, God's going to make that happen through other people. And we give other people a chance to get involved and to take ownership in this church that we're working on. And the last thing, as pride deifies ourselves, we begin to think that we don't need help. We begin to think that we've done it all on our, on our own. And sometimes that bleeds into our salvation even. And sometimes we look at ourselves and we say, well, I'm good enough. And I've gone to church enough. And I don't lie and I don't steal. And I say the right things at the right time. And I give enough money when the, pay, when the plate is passed. And I, and I talk to those people. And I'm, I'm a good person. I've, I've done enough. And we've kind of tricked ourselves into believing that we have earned the right to be Christians. And the real danger there is whenever we start to look at other people with a more realistic lens and we see their faults and we see their shortcomings and we start to say, I am up here and they are down here. And that's a dangerous place to be. And so what we need to realize is that from the moment we sinned, we were separated from God by an uncrossable fathom. And there's nothing that we can ever possibly do to get us back into a right relationship with God. God is the only one who can say that we are righteous, who can bring us back into a relationship with Him. And it doesn't matter what our sin is. Our sin is no greater or no worse or no better than someone else's sin. We don't have small sins and big sins. We just have sin. And all sin separates us. And whenever we can start to realize that, we can realize that we... The, the world doesn't rest on our shoulders, that we can't do it on our, cell, on our own. We can't provide for our families on our own. We can't earn our way into heaven. We can't earn those things. And the good news, again, that's another thing that John said that we're going to talk about every week this year, this, through this series, is the gospel. And the good news is that you don't have to. You don't have to do anything except to accept the gift that God gave you through forgiveness and then continue to offer the love and the grace that he gave you to others. Um, we we're talking in, in, uh, in the teen class this morning in the book of Genesis and talking about in Genesis 15 where God made this covenant with Abraham and they cut these animals in half and there's this blood and muck that, that, that's in between them and God passes through these animals as a sign of a covenant that he's creating with Abram and Abram doesn't pass through that. Abram doesn't pass through the animals. He's not involved in this. And what God is saying is, I'm making a covenant with you that I'm always going to be your God and you are always going to be my people and your children will be my children. And that does not depend on anything that you do. That is something that I'm going to do and I'm going to be faithful. And God continued to be faithful all the way through history, giving Israel chance after chance after chance, finally saying, you can't do it. I'm going to send my son and he's going to die and he's going to take the punishment. He's going to take the wrath of sin he's going to take all of that so that you don't have to and i'm very thankful that god did that and uh today here in a second we're gonna we're gonna offer an invitation and some of you may have this feeling right now where you where you might be thinking i need to give my life to god I, I, maybe you've done it maybe you just need prayers you need you need to ask for help with your walk you need to ask for for god to take some some pride away from you but whatever it is, if you, if you have need of prayer, if you have need of, uh, of Jesus, if you have need of anything, we ask that you come forward. We're going to have uh, some of our shepherds up here uh, ready to pray for you, ready to talk with you. And that we ask that you come forward as we stand and as we sing. No sweeter name than the name of Jesus. No sweeter name have I ever known. 
No sweeter name than the name of